Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. On today's episode, I'll be sitting down with Rob Moore. Rob is the host of The Disruptors, a podcast featuring the most disruptive individuals on the planet. His guests have included Floyd Mayweather, Jordan Peterson, Caitlyn Jenner, David Goggins, and over 20 different billionaires. The Disruptors is the number one business podcast in the UK. Rob Moore is also a best-selling author, holds three world records for public speaking, a property investor and property educator. The only way to sum him up in one word is as an entrepreneur. In today's episode, we dive into what exactly makes a disruptor a disruptor, and plain and simple, how to get as much out of life as possible. It's entertaining, frightening, motivating, and inspiring all at once. Here's Rob Moore. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. And so as I was running through that bio, which um, obviously you've been a very busy guy to say the least, tell me a little bit about the uh, three world records you have for public speaking. What's that about? Yeah, well, in 2016, I'd done hundreds of public speeches and I'd built our property training business to become the largest business of its kind in the UK. And I felt like I've achieved a goal here, but I want a new challenge. And um, I was looking into world records because there's world records for a lot of things. And, you know, I've interviewed David Goggins. I think he got the chin up world record and I was never going to beat that. I was (laughs) never going to beat any of these fitness and strength goals, but I can talk. And um, in, I did a bit of research and I found that the longest public speech was 37 hours. And I just thought, well, I can easily smash that. That's no problem to me. Um, so I set up a charity event. We raised over £100,000 and I went for 47 hours straight. So I beat the world record by 10 hours. It was a lot oh, harder goodness. than I thought, but I did smash the record. And I broke the world record for the longest public speech. So first off, uh, where did you do this and what did you talk about for 47 hours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, well, my wife will tell you that that's not a difficult <laughs> thing for me. <laughs> yeah. So um, my offices are here in Peterborough. We have about 150 staff in our offices here and we have our own training suite. And so we just did it in our main training suite, which could fit about 250 people live. And then we had a, a few thousand people watching on the stream. Um, and I talked about property and business and entrepreneurship and personal development, which uh, are passions of mine. I actually didn't run out of content. Uh, I could have gone on more for content. What ran out was my voice. I completely lost my voice. And um, I'm, I'm glad I'd already broken the world record because I just couldn't talk anymore. Like it had gone. <laughs> my voice had gone. Yeah. I don't know how you could do that. That was a Guinness Book of Records. Is that where you yeah, guys go official. off? Yeah, of? official wow, very cool <laughs> just out of curiosity do you know who had it before the uh the one that was 37 hours i'll tell you what i do know um the the individual and the team were indian okay. and then afterwards the individual and the team that beat it were indian so there's something about indians that makes them good at this as well <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool and so, Rob, I mean, uh, you've developed just an awesome podcast, The Disruptors, which I'm a big fan of. And it, can you tell us kind of where that came about? Is that something that that you knew you wanted to do to be a host or to have a show one day? Or did that just kind of happen as the rise of podcasting kind of took over? 
Um, I used to listen back in the day. I still listen to podcasts now. I love them. But I used to listen to Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan. And I'm talking eight years ago. And I always used to think, there's a lot of good content in here for free. And I really feel a connection to these podcast hosts. And bearing in mind that I do Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and LinkedIn and YouTube and whatever new social media comes out, I usually like to jump on because I think that having a personal brand is very powerful. So it was a combination of being a fan of podcasts as a consumer and then thinking, I wonder if this is the next new big media. And as an entrepreneur, I like to be in industries or innovations quite early, not too early. You don't want to be the first person to build a rocket. You want to be the second. But I like to be in early. So, I mean, we've just actually had our seven year anniversary episode, Brian, nearly a thousand episodes. So in podcasting terms, that's quite a long time. So it was an evolution of media being a, a consumer and a fan of podcasts. And I suppose because, you know, I like doing content, I, the personal brand stuff and delivering content. Some people just don't like it and they find it really hard. You're mm-hmm. a podcaster, you know what it's like. Yes, it's effort and commitment, but it's also enjoyable and you get to meet new people like we are. So yeah, it was an extension of that. That's pretty cool. And then where did the whole idea of the disruptors come from? I know you hear that term thrown around a lot now in in 2023. It's kind of a buzzword that you want to disrupt the norm, disrupt the industry. Was that the the original title going back seven years ago? The original title seven years ago was Disruptive Entrepreneur. Okay. Because I'm an entrepreneur and I help people and start and scale their business to become entrepreneurs. And Probably two years ago, Brian, because I got Harry, the producer, just sat behind the screen and we've got a whole innovation department of editors and people who help with the podcast. And there's probably a good dozen in that team. We all realized that we're limiting our growth, our reach and our impact by just talking about entrepreneurship. And, you know, for example, I've interviewed Floyd Mayweather twice. I've interviewed um, the biggest actress in Game of Thrones. I interviewed... um, Jordan Peterson, and you wouldn't necessarily call these people entrepreneurs. Um, So I wanted to give myself the artistic license to interview people who are generally disruptive. Now, my little tagline when people ask me is I say, uh, my show is called Disruptors, and we interview movers, shakers, and change makers. So I'm not just looking for people who, you know, disrupted um, Blockbuster because they're Netflix or disrupted taxis because they're Uber, because they're unicorns. You know, I I think we can all be disruptive by moving, shaking and change making. Okay. I I love the concept there too. And when it came out, like when I initially heard of Disruptors, I actually thought of, you know, Timothy Ferris. I'm a big fan. I've always liked his books, his podcasts. How do you feel that you differentiate, you know, other than just being you and kind of hosting your show and in, in your kind of format and your dialogue, what makes it different from some of the other big ones out there, um, you know, that are able to get these marquee kind of icon type people on the show? Well, first off, Brian, I am British and there aren't <laughs> many of us Brits taking over America. <laughs> um, so that would that would certainly be one. 
we've evolved our show and our concept. So certainly if you listen to the early episodes in the first 100, it's really mostly about business and entrepreneurship, and it would be relatively standard questions to try and get lessons. I love to learn, Brian, and, and I think it's such a waste of time if you interview people and you don't learn anything. So it, mm-hmm. the initial angle was always, how can we extract the greatest lessons that a billionaire or the founder of Netflix, you know, we've had the founder of Netflix on the show, we've had 20 billionaires. Mm-hmm. So that would be the initial concept. So you could maybe argue they're not that different from many shows like that. But back then there weren't many shows. Mm-hmm. Now we have what we call a hybrid concept. So the, there's one distinct way we're very different. No intros, a hard, impactful, direct question straight up. Most of my guests are like, whoa, as in I just straight away grab attention with maybe a controversial or challenging question. Yeah. We don't ask people to tell their life story because this can be a bit boring at the start of a show. We will obviously extract the lessons, the failures, the mistakes, the wins and the story of the guest. But then we do quick fire rounds, people round, and we have a fun round um, where we mix up the style of the questions. So I always finish with our quick fire. For example, I always ask each guest, what would you rather have a million pounds cash or a million engaged followers on social media? And, you know, we ask sort of different questions that maybe set up a bit of a a moral quandary. So our Mm -hmm. show's got good variety now. Yeah, that's that's really cool. If you don't mind, and you've probably been asked the question before, but do you have a maybe a favorite episode of your own or a guest that you had on that just kind of blew your mind? Um, well, I mean, at the moment, Andrew Tate would be the one that's the most controversial, blows mm-hmm. your mind, the most talked about, because obviously he's the most talked about person on the planet. And we got him just to literally a couple of weeks before he was detained. So if you're talking of the moment, that one, I mean, I mean, it blew up on YouTube, millions of views, but it double blew up on my audio. Like it had three times the highest downloaded episode in seven years within two weeks. I mean, imagine wow. that seven years ish of the show, the highest guest, bearing in mind, we've had some huge guests and he gets three times the downloads within, within a few weeks. I mean, Jordan Peterson obviously is huge news now. Yep. I interviewed Floyd Mayweather twice. He doesn't do many podcasts. Yeah. So I don't I like, think I've ever heard him on a podcast. No. So it's always, I always feel like it's a bit of a feather in your cap when you, when you get someone who hasn't been on a load of shows. I just interviewed Eddie Hall, the world's strongest man. I went to his house, sat in his gym in the yep. basement. So <laughs> a lot of the guests are also not just about the guest, but the experience. And, you know, I become friends with many of them and, um, you, you know, I, I get on a lot of shows now because Mark Victor Hansen recommends me well after he came on my show and became friends with him. So, um, yeah. yeah, there's a few. Do you see, you know, having spoken with so many of these quote unquote disruptors, do you see any commonality amongst them? Like what's, what is it about them? Or do you see anything in their personality that, you know, it, it, or are they just completely different? You yeah. know, is, is there nothing really you can kind of point to? Um, Brian, I think that's a brilliant question. And I'm not the guy that says, oh, that's a good question after every question. So I actually think that is a, a really good question. <laughs> well, I appreciate um, that. 
so thinking on the spot, i.e. I don't have a formula for this, but thinking on the spot, rebelliousness is, or rebellion, I don't even know if rebelliousness is a word, but in everyone who's truly disruptive, there is an art of rebellion where they don't really like being told what to do. Definitely see that. Mm -hmm. I would say many of them have quite a childlike curiosity. I think about Elon Musk, who we've been in conversation with to be on the show. Hopefully we'll nail that. Um, Think about uh, Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix. I interviewed the founder of Atari. Um, And they're really curious, almost to the point of playful. You know, they're not people who get hyper-stressed when there's a problem. It's like curiosity to solve the problem. So I'd say curiosity, rebellion. I would also say they approach problems different to other mere mortals, i.e. they almost have a sadistic enjoyment of problems. Don't get me wrong. They throw their toys out of the pram like everyone else, and they'd rather they just go away. But they they get to a point where they go, right, I'm solving this like a mad professor or a a coder who's just going to go through the night and drink Red Bull until they've fixed this code. Whereas most of the world, they're avoiding problems. So there are probably a few others, but I'd say they're a big three that I see a lot, Brian. Okay. No, that's well said. And do you find that in yourself at all? Like as you sit down and talk with these guys and gals, um, you know, are you able to kind of relate to them or do you see them as being like, I, I hear so much about Elon Musk where it's almost like he's a, an alien. Like people have trouble sometimes communicating with him. Do you find that or do you find yourself to be just kind of like them? Um, look, I can't sit here and say I'm in the same world as Elon Musk. He's a unicorn. But I can say that those three traits I just shared with you that seem to be common in the hundreds of people I've interviewed, if you cut me in half, you would see those traits inside my DNA. I hate being told what to do. I love rebelling. I'll tell you something I love. (laughs) When someone says, you can't do it, I immediately just take that as I'm going to do it. So he may not be well known in the US. But there's a famous artist in the UK, in my mind, the best modern artist that there's ever been. His name is Damien Hurst. Mm-hmm. And I'm good friends with one of his good friends. He's a famous snooker player called Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's been on my show. And I um, asked Ronnie to give me an intro to Damien. And he went, ha, Damien doesn't do stuff like that. You'll never get him. And immediately I thought, that's exactly why I'm getting Damien Hurst on my show. Instead of thinking, oh, rejection, it didn't happen. Sorry for asking. I just immediately saw that as um, I'm going to do it then. So yeah. you, know, you know the saying, observe the masses, do the opposite. Mm-hmm. That's certainly a trait that I see in many and it is in myself. And I sign out every single one of my thousands of pieces of content with, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. So I'm not yeah. Elon Musk, but I've got similar traits. Yes. Got it. Interesting. And then do you think that that what you're describing is a good quality to have in life for for the average Joe out there? Because if we take, you know, Floyd Mayweather, for an instance, obviously, he's one of the best boxers, if not the best of all time. But he's also built a brand that everybody instantly recognizes just of him being who he is. But then you have, you know, a a huge section of the population that say that guy's just an asshole. If he wasn't so elusive and such a quick boxer, everybody would hate him. Nobody would even care who he is um, because of his persona. So is that something good to kind of have that trait or is it just good in a very, very rare instance, you know, with these people that have such a talent or a unique mind? 
I think probably the latter, Brian, um, because the first thing I think we've got to think about is what is your natural default personality? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure we've all done a personality test before. You know, and you get people who are conscientious or compliant or they like stability and security. I really respect and honor those people because they're the opposite of me, Brian, and I need a lot of them people in my life and my business. Otherwise, everything will be a massive mess. And I would never go to those kind of people and say, I'll be disruptive, be a a rebel. No, do the opposite. Be compliant. Get security. I I don't want my accountants to be rebels. So I think for many people, no, do not do what we are talking about. So first thing is, who are you? And I am naturally rebellious. I was rebellious at school. I get a kick out of being different and rebellious. And probably there's a smaller percentage of the population that are rebels than there are compliant. Because if we're all rebels, the world will just be in constant war. That being said, Brian, if you do want to start a business, be an entrepreneur, disrupt an industry, build a massive personal brand, be the very best in a, a niche or a space, then those disruptive qualities are useful. Got it. And there's a lot of things I want to cover here in a small amount of time. And I know you don't like giving the the life story that you said that could be a little bit boring, but just to provide some context, a two-part question here. Right now, what do you define yourself as? Are you a podcaster? Are you an author? Are you an investor? If you had to say I'm blank on on a position or title, what would it be? Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. Okay. Now, a lot of people that struggle kind of leaves with the door that. open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. It's a catch-all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Podcaster, <laughs> investor, YouTuber, whatever. Yeah. So a lot of people don't like calling themselves an entrepreneur. I, I often ask my guests who are multimillionaires, but maybe they're a celebrity or they're a creator or they're an actor or an actress. And I ask them, are you an entrepreneur? And a lot of them, it really throws them. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Can I call myself that? Do I have the right to call myself that? And it's weird how that word is so loaded. To me, an entrepreneur is someone who um, runs multiple useful businesses simultaneously. And I think that's what I do. I have a property training business. I have 360 property units and 1,300 tenants in my property portfolio. You need to be entrepreneurial to do that. And I built that over 17 years. I have the UK's largest property and business training company did 19 million in sales last year. You have to be, that's pounds. You know, you have to be pretty entrepreneurial to do that. Got 150 staff. I've got 1.5 million followers across all my socials and YouTube and podcast. So I'm an entrepreneur. Yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. And it is kind of a catch all. And then as far as kind of the life story, can you just clue us in like, what led you? I know you said as a kid, you were a rebellious kid. You were kind of a, a disruptor before there were disruptors, if you will. Where did it go from there? Did you go the traditional routes of going to university, studying, landing a job, working up a ladder? Can you just kind of give us a quick summary on that path? Yeah. Okay. So there was two reasons I was a rebel as a kid. And I wasn't the rebel in the sense that I got expelled and got shit grades. I actually got really good grades all the way through. But I did that as a way to rebel because I wasn't interested in any of those subjects. Just did that to prove and go, I can get really good grades in things I don't give a fuck about. I don't know if I'm allowed (laughs) to use that language on your show, but I'm sure your editor will have final say. So weirdly, my rebellion looked like compliance, but it wasn't. 
it was rebellion. Um, but I was the fattest kid in my year at school from in about 11 to 13. Mm-hmm. And I really hated it, Brian, and it caused me a lot of emotional baggage and shame. I felt ostracized and um, unrespected and unnoticed and unvalued. And I lost all my weight moving schools at age 13 to going into a senior school and all the problems went away. Even girls really started to notice me, which they hadn't before, but none of the emotional stuff went away. I still felt like, you know, I'm, I'm a valuable human being. Don't push me to the edges. Don't ignore me. Don't hate me, love me, notice me. And that stayed with me. And there's still a part of that that's with me today, Brian. And I used to hate that about myself, but now I've learned to love that about myself because I think a lot of people who are really successful are just trying to prove themselves to the world. Rock stars are probably trying to prove themselves to the world. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you're doing it in a way that's valuable to other people. So that was really the driver and the rebellious element. Now, compliance was 15, 18, 21 years old when school, university degree, get good grades, study. And there was nothing you could teach me at university that I was interested in. So I did it as a, a weird mix of high of compliance and rebellion. And I built up a lot of debt there, Brian. You know, I talk, I've got a podcast called Money. I wrote the UK's best-selling book called Money. And I, I think it's a bit of a scam. And it makes me oh, quite angry how much debt you have to get in to just learn how to earn a living. Mm-hmm. And I got 50 grand in debt paying for my university. And that was before you had to pay for the actual degree. You only had to pay for your accommodation and everything else. But that was the debt I got in. And I got a degree in something I didn't care about. And um, on December the 15th, 2005, my dad, who's a rebel himself, which is probably where I got it from, and he always had pubs and bars and clubs and hotels. And, and my entrepreneurial streak and desire to sell and hustle and having a bit of streetwise nature about me, Brian, I never learned that in school. I never learned that from my tutors. Um, I learned it from my dad, seeing him actually being a hustler. And on December the 15th, 2005, he had a nervous breakdown in his pub. He got beaten up in by the police in front of all of his customers. He got sectioned. He got diagnosed with bipolar. And, you know, for probably now more than 15 years, we've had a lot of problems with my dad's mental health. And that really shook me up to um, take my life more seriously and take a bit more risk. Not just work in a pub, not just have a job when you're not meant to be. And that forced me into getting into property and starting my business. And then I got all the debt paid off in my first year, made a hundred grand clear, not long after, 20 properties in the first year, 30 in the second, 50 in the third. And um, yeah, turned it around real quick. Gotcha. So what did you study in college? Architecture. Architecture, okay. And you say that that it was a waste, like why? Uh, going back to maybe your, your 17, 18 year old self, like, why did you go to college? Because that's what smart people do. And if you okay, don't so- go to college, you're thick. Yeah. Or you <laughs> so have to work on the following. tools. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, if you are surrounded by 10,000 sheep and you're stuck in the middle of it, it doesn't matter if you're a cow, you're a sheep. <laughs> and yeah. I just got like, 
I got stuck in the system. Now, look, if, Brian, uh, this is not me mocking it, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people do. But if you want to be a doctor, a dentist or a lawyer, go and get the degree. It's probably one of the best ways to do it. But not if you want to be an entrepreneur, not if you're a rebel, not if you want to start your own business. Like, why would you go to degree, college, university, get 100 grand in debt, learning from people about business who are probably in debt themselves and not earning more than 60 or 70,000 a year? Yeah. I earn no, that I, in a day now. I, there's a, a big part of me that agrees with everything that you're saying. And I've had many debates on it too, where I think college is very good, but it, that doesn't mean that it's very good for everyone. And, yeah, uh, it's very know. good for being independent in the real world because I knew people who were 18 who couldn't even fry an egg. So going to college helps you with independence and so- socialising, yes. Doctor, dentist, lawyer, yes. Good financial education, no. Amount of debt you have to get in just to earn the right to get a small salary, no. Want to be a business person, an entrepreneur, no. Want to learn from credible people in business and entrepreneurship, no. Yeah. And then what was it that, that made you say, as, as you got out there, you had that experience with your father that you said, you know what, I want to get into properties. I want to buy real estate. Did you learn that from someone? Did you, you pick up a magazine about somebody that was really wealthy that had done it? Like what, what made you go that route than a lot of other avenues that an entrepreneur could go? Because it was pretty accidental, Brian, but Two or three people around me in my life that um, I respected and admired at the time. One was my dad and one was uh, someone who had a gallery in the centre of Peterborough and I got to know him well and he actually sold a few of my paintings that I used to do on the side. Both of them kept burning my ear about property. Because back then, what, we're 05, 06, 2005 plus, you know, we're just sort of approaching the boom before the bust of 08. So in, in England in 2006, taxi drivers were in property. Your distant cousin was in property. It was just a, a huge thing then. Actually, not necessarily the best time to get in. Um, but two people around me who I um, looked up to, they were in my ear about it. So I went to this local property networking meetup in my local city and I really didn't like it, Brian. I I wasn't very social back then. I felt a bit like a fish out of water. I thought all people in property were sort of yuppies or hardcore capitalists. I used to like listening to Rage Against the Machine. I didn't really, I didn't really have an identity, but you know, I used to think people that drove Ferraris were drug dealers, you know, I had all sorts of, wild noise going on in my brain. But because of what happened to my dad, I thought I've got to change my life because there's only one way this is going. I'm in so much debt, I'm probably about to go personally bankrupt. My dad's health is at the worst it's ever been. So that was, I guess, a catalyst, Brian. And why property? Because people around me were getting into it as well. Got it, very interesting. And so a couple of questions to, to some of that upbringing in those formative years that you just described. You mentioned that when you grew up, you were, you were fat. And, and obviously now, just seeing you, you're not. Um, do, you, do you spend a lot of time minding you know, diet, health and wellness, exercise? Uh, and not only you, but a lot of the people that you interview, of course, are kind of these movers and shakers. I've always found that a, a lot of them are just like fanatics about their routine and the regimen. What's your take on that? 
I'm definitely a fanatic about my routine. I wrote a book called Routine Equals Results, and I think that I also wrote a book called Life Leverage. So routine, leverage, high priority of tasks, productivity in the day. I am fanatical about that for sure, because you get to the point where you're maxed out on what you can do and then you have to implement leverage. Brian, this is you don't you didn't know why this was a personal question, but I don't mind asking it, but probably the greatest source of pain and guilt and baggage in my life, I would say is food and eating and self image. So um, I guess in many ways, emotionally, I'm still the fat kid. I cannot eat anything without experiencing any guilt. I get I have major fear triggers around getting fat again. I think I don't well, I know because my wife and others have told me I don't have a very realistic body image, i.e. I will think I'm fat when I'm clearly not. Uh, and yeah, eating and and all of that is still a highly emotionally charged. It's, it's funny, I've made hundreds of millions of pounds and yet still can't yet nail this bit and in a way it's good brian because it's almost like a thermostat it's like Mm -hmm. a trigger if i got to a certain weight for me it's probably 87 88 kilos i'm going to go into full-on starvation mode (laughs) you know full-on fear against getting fat again um yeah and i've my wife is a, a proper expert on food and diet and gut health, and I've learned a lot more. But yeah, that's um, that's an area of life I, I do wrestle with. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, Rob, like, is that something that still at, at this stage of life you try to figure out, like, can I fix this about me? Or is it something that you just accept and say, this is the way I am. I'll use it to, to motivate myself to exercise or eat good. Or is it something that bothers you? Like I'm going to figure out how to kind of eliminate this thought process. Yeah. Well, you raise an interesting question when it comes to fixing, Mm -hmm. because um, there's an argument that I'm not broken. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not saying that was your implication that I'm broken. No, not at all. But to fix something, the assumption is something is broken. But to look at what's broken is to look at the downside, but there's also an upside. So, Brian, um, I may have stayed working in my dad's pub, earning £200 a week and spending £300 a week if my dad didn't have his nervous breakdown. I may have not cared about writing a load of books and doing a load of podcasts if I didn't still want to somewhat prove myself to the world. And a lot of those triggers came from painful situations in my life. So I've gone on this journey of thinking, yeah, all this baggage about my weight, I am broken and I need to fix. But then I've gone, wait a minute. That's the thing that drives me. Mm-hmm. Do I like my life right now? You're damn right I do. I have seven cars and a lot of them are worth a lot of money. I have 340 property units. I've got an amazing wife and children. I've got a great team that work with me. This isn't a humble brag. This is a statement of gratitude. I love my life and I didn't love my life when I was fat. So you could argue there's nothing broken, but I've had this almost quandary discussion in my mind. 
for about 30 years. <laughs> and some, sometimes I think I just need to worry less and yeah, I should maybe do a bit of therapy. And sometimes I think, well, I'm clearly never going to get properly fat because I've got all this emotional baggage that stops me from getting fat. Yeah. It was John Demartini that taught me about how voids create values. And this okay. is apparently, it might be logotherapy, um, do, um, axiology, the study of values. Logotherapy was from uh, Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. So axiology is the study of values. And values are the things that we deem most important to us. And many of those values are driven by voids, i.e. we're trying to fill a hole in our soul. And as soon as the, the void is gone, the value is gone. Like if you're broke and you're hustling hard to get out of debt and then you get given 10 million quid, you're going to stop hustling to get out of debt because the void is gone. Yeah. So through this research, I've learned to appreciate the void because it creates the value. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for sharing all of that. And the reason that I was asking is because I've interviewed a lot of folks that that they really put so much value on their workout routine or their their diet or whatever it might be that that just kind of stabilizes them no matter what's going on in life. And I, I always ask them, like, what's the real motive there? Because I notice in myself, it's always been kind of, I'm more of a goal-oriented person where I was never an endurance person. I played the traditional sports of, you know, football, basketball growing up. Then once all of that came to an end after college and I kind of felt the need for something, I just on a whim literally signed up for a marathon. And then that made me start running and exercising. And then when it was done, I kind of felt that void. And then I just more or less on a whim again, signed up for an Ironman and my workouts were phenomenal because I knew that I had that goal to reach. And then once that was done, it was always kind of like, I need to refill that with something where other people have said they're goal oriented, or they might just like that, that feeling of routine, that that's just kind of the way that it is. But I, I'm just curious, those motives of like, why am I going to get up this morning and go work out hard? And, and kind of how to identify it. And it seems like you had your own angle on it, that it's more of a personal thing um, that gets you going, saying, I just can't end up like that. Yeah. Certainly when it comes to my weight and energy and fitness, I'm definitely a guy that likes a challenge, i.e. I'm more driven by fear. And um, so, for example, someone called me out two weeks ago for a boxing fight. And I bet him 50 grand immediately because I thought he was going to wriggle out. And he is 35 kilos heavier than me. And I have been training like a crazed zombie infected nutter <laughs> for two weeks straight. And I've just had my first day off through motivation of fear of losing the money and losing the fight. And we're going to do the fight in front of 1500 people and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think where we're drilling down here, Brian, in this conversation is to understand what you value, to understand your voids and understand what drives and motivates you and then build your routine or your goals or your lifestyle around that. Because then you're living more towards your ideal life, whereas what a lot of people do they look at Arnold Schwarzenegger and, you know, I'm going to have to copy his routine or this person, Jordan Peterson, he's a genius. I'm going to study everything he does and copy what he does. But they're their values. Mm -hmm. For example, I, you know, I don't like to call people out, but Jordan Peterson has been giving quite a lot of bad advice about food because <laughs> it's not his, it's not his area. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Just eat beef. 
I'm sorry, that's not good advice. Just eat meat. <laughs> um, so, you know, we all have a different driver and motivator. And generally, entrepreneurs, they love a challenge. And they're obsessive. And then when they lose the obsession or their challenge, that can lead to what's the opposite of obsession? Depression. Because mm -hmm. we could be quite volatile. So that's probably why you do these big challenges, Brian. It's yep. great. You train like a, as I said, nutter. And then when that's gone, it's empty. Yeah. And so then you need something else. Yeah. It's, it is so true. And just kind of seeing that almost in the mirror, um, it's exactly what it is. It's like you could do an Ironman and I've, I've probably, you know, gone on my bicycle two times since then in the past six years. And it's like, that just goes away and, and yeah, you bet definitely need something to pick up the slack and get you going again. A question I had, um, you know, I remember when I was young, one of my favorite athletes was Emmett Smith and this is American football now, all time leading rusher, you know, real, you know, he was awesome. He was the face of the Dallas Cowboys. But anyways, his autobiography on the back of it, he had a quote that said, as soon as you're satisfied, you're finished. And I, I always remembered that quote when I was really young. And it was interesting because you do see that that is what can keep you hungry. But then a lot of other people would say, that's not the best way to live life because you're just constantly in this chase. You're never really content, which is what the whole goal is, is to kind of find that harmony and that peace and, and happiness. So would you say that satisfaction is good or bad? And Bad. Uh, bad. Bad. Very I'll quick tell you on why. That. Okay. Uh, I'm really glad we're having this discussion because I think one of the great paradoxes of life, like if you look at life really closely, I think there's a, a humorous paradox in everything. I'll give you an example of a paradox. If you take the easy choice now, it'll be harder later. If you take the painful choice now, it'll be easier later. It's in, in everything. Tell me something where, where you make the easy choice now. Uh, shall I have a salad or a pizza for lunch? Ah, this, the pizza. And then you'll regret it later. Conflict. Uh, Go to have conflict with this person. Oh, I'll avoid it. It's easy. And the conflict grows. To-do list. Get the hardest shit done first. So a great paradox of life is if you tackle the hard things now, your life gets easier. And if you avoid them and go for the easy wins now, your life gets harder. And satisfaction and contentment, I believe, are the same. Here's what people don't understand, Brian. People naively think that there is an outcome called contentment. There is not. There is a moment in your life which is beautiful and unfortunately doesn't last very long, which is called contentment. And entrepreneurs see this all the time. You know, we hit a goal, we make some money, we're financially free, and there's a little moment of contentment, but it's just, you, it just never stays. And I think the reason that it is, Brian, is a, a universal law. And I can't explain it scientifically, but I can explain it by this. I believe everything in the universe decays unless it's given energy. So there's a saying, I think it was Ray Kroc, if you're green, you grow, and if you're ripe, you rot. So as, if, if any of us, if anything in the universe, well, let's say the world, stops moving and stops breathing, in the end it decays, even metals. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a universal law, which is, 
the more energy you put into something, the more life you give it. But as soon as you stop putting energy into it, it starts to decay. And I can tell you this from a business perspective, I've retired a dozen times. And the moment your retirement starts to decay is the moment you retire. Because you've got this dream and this fantasy and I'm going to do this. And then you've got to book your cruises and then you've got to cash in your savings. And then you've got to fill a day where you don't really know what to do. And then it slowly starts to decay. And what do retired people start doing? Well, they die unless they start finding hobbies or other things to do. So the reason why I totally agree with Emmett Smith that as soon as you're satisfied, you're dead is because as soon as you're satisfied, you start to decay because it's a universal law. And the only way you grow is putting energy back into something. And like, I, I, I want to drive this home to your audience, Brian, that if we can get our head around that, you can balance that paradox. Because by the way, you can retire at the moment in the, in the UK, there are the most beautiful sunsets. Like at about 5.15, the sky goes completely red. It is bright. It is fresh. And in that moment, I am content, Ryan. Mm -hmm. And I am retired. But then about five minutes later, eight of my guys from my staff come over to my outdoor gym and we do boxing training for this fight and we kill each other. Mm -hmm. And I am no longer content. <laughs> I and love it. I think, I love the and I think you... You earn contentment. You don't get contentment. You right. earn it. Yeah. So just to, to summarize that from what I'm hearing is that there are no outcomes. It's not an outcome. It's, it's this journey or this chase, if you will. And along that journey or chase, you find these little glimpses of contentment. Ooh. So do you have goals? Like, do you, do you have a goal? Because it's almost like you're working towards something. But if you say that I'm never, ever going to reach it, it can, for some people, seem like, why am I even doing this? I'm chasing a ghost. I would much rather chase a ghost that I could create a fantasy of how amazing that ghost would be than to already know what that ghost looks like. Hmm. So the paradox people can't get their head around is that this constant chase is unfulfilling. But life is a constant chase. That's what it is. And if you let go of the chase, life will just evolve you out. So for me, some people feel that the constant chase is relentless and tiring and brutal. It would be the opposite. I.e., if you knew, would you like to know the day you died? Would you like to know, Brian, in advance the day you're going to die and how you die? I don't think so. I don't think many entrepreneurs would like. Imagine you knew the day you were going to die and how you're going to die. That would affect everything you think about for the rest of your life. Yeah. I don't want to know. I want to go out. I want the biggest heart attack, making love to my wife, age 110, in a massive <laughs> mansion, going live on Facebook in front of millions of people. I want a glorious <laughs> death, and I want to imagine that that is. I don't want to know how I'm going to die. Because it's going to yeah. ruin life. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. A lot to think about there.
<laughs> do you mind if I do a, a total left turn for lack sure. of any better segue? At the beginning, you were mentioning at the outset that you like to be on the forefront, not the first, but early on, whether it was podcasting or, and you also mentioned social media, you mentioned Snapchat, TikTok, and so forth. What are your thoughts on social media? Because I would venture to say, and I know that you'll have people out there say, oh, well, you know, people, you know, they had the telephone, they would write letters to each other. You know, there were always these evolutions of communication. But I think it is a real stretch to look at any of those and compare it to what social media is today. And so what are some of your takes on maybe what the future of social media looks like and if it's good or bad? I mean, I I know there's a lot of goods to it, but then you see a lot of the stories, especially on youth, of the impact social media has. It's almost like uncontrollable. It it seems like something we're not able to control. This is another great debate. So um, do you have children, Brian? Yeah, I do. Three. Okay. Um, would you shoot someone and kill them if, if you didn't, they would kill your children? Yes. Okay. If so if, would there, I. if this is a binary, no other uh, options, yeah. obviously. Yeah. yeah. So would I. So the reason I ask you that is I get the impression you're a kind, warm person, but pushed, you will do quite heinous acts to save your children. So the reason I use this construct is that no one is good or bad. Nothing is right or wrong. And no platform is one-sided. So all human beings have capacity for evil and good. All social media platforms are great for humanity and terrible for humanity equally. Now I have a mentor who, because when I, when I was broken in my early twenties, I was the guy that was negative about everything and thought everything was shit. Didn't think anything was good. Then when I had my awakening in 2005 and I started doing all these personal development and property courses and I went and jumped up and down like this at Tony Robbins events, like many of us have, Mm -hmm. I was like, everything is awesome. And I was positive about everything. And over time I realized both of them were extremes and they were one-sided and life is not one without the other. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure everyone listening, there's people that they love that they hate at times. And I'm sure there's people that they hate, that they admire at times. Andrew Tate is a good example of someone that a lot of people hate, but still admire. So there is neutrality in us all, equal upside and downside. And everything is neutral. And then what human beings do is we we project on our emotions and make it mean something. So social media is neither good or bad. You are neither good or bad. I am neither good or bad. But then when we do something and someone judges it and emotion is projected onto it. We make it mean if it's good or bad. So with social media, you could build a million followers. You could get a just giving page and you could raise 10 million pounds for the current earthquake. Or you could use it to groom a child and go and abuse them. And you can use that platform for the same fucking thing. Yeah. You can, you could take a hammer and rebuild the most amazing statue with a hammer. Or you can smash someone's head in with it. Yeah. So, 
Sorry to not directly answer the question, but I think it's really important as a life lesson to understand nothing is good or bad. It's neutral. Yeah. And so look at how you judge it and are you judging it out of context? And then look at how you can leverage it for good. I personally think social media is more good than bad, but I've made millions out of it and I've got millions of followers out of it and I create content on it and I don't sit there consuming stuff all day, every day and I haven't become a cabbage on it. Yeah. But yeah. I also know that if I put a picture up of my house, I could get burgled doing that. I never mm. put pictures when I'm on holiday because you know, I have a lot of property. So I, has, yeah. I think it has equal upside and downside, Brian. And I, I agree with that. I think it is a magnifier of sorts um, that, and, and an enabler of, of good and evil. I guess the, the thought that I have behind it, and maybe some of the, the fear a lot of people have, is that it's out of control. So if you have something that can grow, and if there's evil within it or whatever bad there might be, and you can't contain it or really control it, it seems like it can just run rampant. And that's... Uh, I don't mean to be cynical, but I think that's where a lot of people say, you know, they just turn it on and it's like, my gosh, this is what, you know, our kids are going to consume and what can you do about it? Where at least, you know, of course, there's always been good and evil, but if we rewind the clock 50 years and you had seven TV channels or whatever, they, there was something to police that, uh, something to regulate it, where I feel like right now, this is the first time there's been a mode of communication that feels like the wild, wild west. Yeah, well... Is social media out of control or is it just in control of a few powerful people? Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, I don't know. That, that is uh, really diving down the rabbit hole. And I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you put it that way. It's, it's scary. <laughs> yeah. One thing I've observed about life, um, Brian, I'm a great student of life, um, is that the law of compounding seems to be universal. So you probably are familiar with Moore's law, not my law, but Gordon Moore. And initially it was on, I think, the, the amount of transistors you could get on a chipboard would double. But basically in layman's terms, it's, you know, the speed of technology exponentially grows. It's essentially in layman's terms. So, you know, if you look in the last 20 years since the internet, look how much everything has compounded. The amount of followers you can get. The amount of people that you know, the amount of people that see you, the amount of content that you consume, the amount of ads you consume, the amount of media that you consume, like the snowball effect. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I, what I would definitely agree with on the statement is that snowball is getting huge and there's some big downsides. And what will happen, because this happens over, it, it really what it is, Brian, is evolution mm -hmm. on the internet. And the wild, wild west is because the internet is new and therefore we haven't quite figured out the right rules and regulations. But what generally tends to happen is things create their own rules until something happens and the populace goes, that's the line. And then they put in a law. And so we do generally catch up with ourselves, whereby if social media gets to the point where it really is ruining our lives, there'll be laws that are put in place for the betterment of humanity hopefully yeah 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 i mean there's there's so much to think about and there are you, you see there are laws and and it goes by country it can go by municipality you know who wants to mm. come up with a law who wants to say no that's that's censorship you know we don't want that it's something that like you said it'll just have to continue to evolve mm.
So what I like to finish, Rob, is um, with kind of a, a bit of our own lightning round here on the show. Uh, are you open to that? I'll fire some questions at you, get to know a little bit about you and uh, to kind of I expose well you to our guests. I was born ready for this, Brian. Nice. Let's rock and roll. So first question up here, uh, a well-traveled man, what's your favorite destination or vacation? Dubai. Dubai. Okay. Never been. And this began as a finance podcast, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what's been your best investment? My own knowledge about business life and money. And your worst investment? I'm not buying Apple shares or Bitcoin right at the start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite book? Money by Rob Moore. <laughs> <laughs> I like the shameless um, plug. Yeah. How about a, a follow-up to that, a favorite book that you did not author? Well, exactly. You should be specific with the question. <laughs> um, I have to say my seminal book was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill because it was the bridge between my old mindset and my new mindset. Uh, that's a timeless book. I love it. And any favorite movie? Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko. Okay. And growing up, did you have a childhood hero? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. And uh, do you have a quote that you like to live by? If you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Perfect. That was awesome, Rob. I really appreciate the time here. Any last words that you'd like to leave with our audience? Um, money, the love of money, and anything negative about money is not the root of all evil. The root of all evil is evil acts and evil people. So I think the most positive message I can leave is see money as a great tool and an enabler for you to do great things with your life. Meet great people, go to great places, buy beautiful material items that you get a lot of pleasure from, give a lot away to charity, be a generous person and employ a lot of people. And I actually think that if we ha all had a better attitude towards money, the world would be a better place because we could all afford to give more. So that's what I'd like to say, leaving you, because I know finance is a big part of your um, your podcast. Yep. Yeah, without a doubt. And that's almost a perfect tee up for my new book, What Should I Do With My Money? That uh, <laughs> really gets into some of the the psychology you know, of economics. This was awesome, Rob. Everybody, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. And today we had the pleasure of speaking with Rob Moore, the host of The Disruptors. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not 
a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.